Welcome to Filmy Girls Idolcast. Hit it. I, 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 I like the gross. You, 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 you like the gross. I, 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 I like the gross shit. Me and my crew can only boss with the gross shit. We, 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 we like the gross. You, 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 you like the gross shit. Oh, my piece, they like the gross shit. Get that one nigga move your heart like this. September 30th, 2006, and I highly recommend taking a peek at the video, which I'll link to in the show notes, for some classic mid-2000s fashion, haircuts, and abs. So when we left off in the last episode, we had just closed out 2006. Over in Japan, Arashi was slowly climbing out of obscurity thanks in no small part to Matsumoto Jun's unexpected success in the drama Hana Yori Dango and were reversing the Korean export trend by doing a little mini-tour of Asia. Katun had just exploded onto the scene as our new pirate idol overlords, and SMAP was just getting on with things while being amazing. We're going to leave the world of Johnny's and Associates on hold for the moment as we take a deep dive into some very eventful years in the Korean boygroup world. When we left off at the end of the last episode, Xinhua, having escaped SM to even greater success on their own, were about to go on hiatus so that the members could perform their mandatory military service, and young DBSK were serving out a 13-year contract while being the most popular boy group in every country in Asia, 
except Japan. Okay, everybody with me? Um, before we go further in this episode, though, I need to warn you that this episode will mention suicide and depression, nothing graphic, nothing in detail, but please be aware if you are sensitive to these topics, they are mentioned. All right, so first things first, we need to bring a few more players into this already complicated mix. Remember our friends Salteji and Boys from back in episode four? Well, one of the boys, Yang Hyung Suk, started his own hip-hop-centered production company after the group disbanded. After some early financial difficulties, the newly named YG had some success with a hip-hop group called One Time. That's one, uh, number one, capital T-Y-M, who debuted in 1998. One Time don't quite fall under the idol group category, but they did have some really catchy songs, cool dance moves, and a dedicated fan base. One time is one time for your One of the members of One Time was a talented young man named Teddy Park, and Teddy grew up in Los Angeles, but rather than try and break into the American music business, he came back to Korea, and it's something we'll see more and more often as the years pass. Children of the diaspora returning home and bringing with them a fresh mix of cultural influences and ideas. And Teddy Park wasn't just a performer. He quickly added songwriting and production to his skill set, taking over most of the heavy lifting musically for one time, as well as writing and producing for other YG artists. Now, CEO Yang must have learned something about publicity from his time with Soteji and Boys, because almost from the start he aimed at generating controversy. Another early YG act was a female group called Big Mama, who looked more like ordinary women than overly coiffed idols, but they sang like angels. And watch out if you dismissed Big Mama because of their looks, because CEO Yang was just aching to drop a sick burn on you. He wanted talent, baby. He wanted to produce artists. And if you didn't look like you came from Lee Suman's glossy side of the tracks, then that was even Better. Warning, 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 the drama king is in the building, the drama king is in the building. But CEO Yang's most successful early signing was a talented young R&B singer named Seven, that's S-E numeral seven, E-N, who broke new ground by releasing a digital single called Crazy on December 1st, 2004, not long after the debut of a new Korean online streaming service called Melon. The song and the new website were a hit. The future was digital. And to keep things in perspective, let me run you through a few numbers. The best-selling album in Korea in 2004 sold just under half a million copies. The best-selling album in Japan that year sold 1.5 million. When I said in the last episode that Korean singer Boa had a hit record in Japan in 2002, that hit record only sold about 250,000 copies in Japan in a year that had like five or six million plus sellers and even some two million plus sellers. And that's just Japan's domestic market, while Korea was already starting to count on exports. Not to mention the further adoption of Japan's multiple version sales techniques for idol products. 
Bola's album is still an important milestone, but it was a minor hit in the bigger picture of Japanese music. It was also around this time that CD sales really started to decline for so-called normal artists, non-idols, as casual fans and fans with little disposable income started to move online for their music, downloading just a song or two rather than purchasing a whole album. And music industries around the globe scrambled to keep up with the new technology and new listening habits of their audience. But the decline has been far slower in Japan than in other countries. And the money in physical CD sales is so much better than online markets that for Korean entertainment companies, looking at all the riches of the Japanese market must be like looking at a sumptuous meal through a plate glass window, or rather looking at a sumptuous meal from across the East Sea. CEO Yang must have seen the way the wind was blowing because he sent Seven to Japan in 2005 to try and break through. But let's get back to the boy groups. So, one of the trainees that had been kicking around YG Entertainment for a while was this precocious young rapper named Kwon Jiang, who had joined up at the age of 13 in 1999. CEO Yang had something different in mind for him. Not just a hip-hop group like one time, but something more like he'd been a part of with South Asian boys. The music would still be good, obviously, but the group would be something more holistic, something less reliant on CD sales, with more focus on image, branding, and managing that relationship with the fans, something more like an idol group. And in another correct reading of the tea leaves, CEO Yang made sure that we knew the members as personalities. Before the group had even debuted, their rehearsals, their life, was filmed, and the footage compiled into a gripping documentary series that aired on both regular television and online, starting in July of 2006. Viewers got sucked in watching Jiang and five other trainees compete to see who would make the final cut for this new group, all the while learning about the guys' personalities and talents. And then, after the episode was over, these new potential fans could click over to the YG website, available in Korean, Japanese, Chinese, and English, to see the special behind-the-scenes practice photos, and so on. It was an incredible feat of marketing. We saw the precocious Jiang, charming when he smiled, but also overly brash and bossy. Tall, high-cheekboned Sunghyun, so insecure in his own body, that it looked like he might teleport into a fourth dimension out of the sheer embarrassment of existing, unless he was spinning verses. Impossibly good-looking Yongbei, the personification of likable. Bouncy Daesung with this goofy smile you can't help but mirror when you see it. Pretty voiced Young Sung, and the baby, bratty little Sunghyun. People loved it. The show racked up an incredible 1 million views on the official site alone, and who knows how many watched it on um, unofficial streaming sites. And then, on August 19th, 2006, at the YG Family 10th Anniversary Concert, Big Bang made their debut. Kwon Jiang, now going by the stage name G-Dragon, the leader, was joined by Big Sunghyun, now T.O.P., Youngbae, now known as Taeyang, Cheerful Daesung, and Little Sunghyun, now called Sungri. A few singles followed, a concert tour of Korea, and their early image leaned heavily on the impossibly handsome Youngbae and his smooth R&B vocals, all very 7-esque. 
But the group's first big breakthrough wasn't a Young Bay song, but rather a song called Lies, released August 16, 2007, written by Ji Young, and originally intended to be a solo song. And what is striking even now about Lies and the accompanying music video is that it really does capture the sound and feel of being an angsty teen. I'm so sick of love songs, spits Ji Young. The song was pivoting away from the 7-ish R&B hip-hop sound they debuted with to something closer to electropop. Four on the floor verses dropping into a kaleidoscope chorus, bass hitting on eighth note offbeats, a swirl of synthesizers making it sound like you're trapped on an ironic merry-go-round. And the music video told a story, the kind of teen melodrama that taps into something dark, but like so, so earnest. Suddenly, Big Bang weren't just your cute boyfriends. They, like, loved you. Enough to, like, take her murder up for you and then serenade you from behind the bars in jail. Like, for real. The lyrics go like this. I'm so sorry, but I love you, Takojima. Iyamoraso, ijeya araso, nekapiryohe. I'm so sorry, but I love you. Uh, it was all lies. I didn't know. Now I've realized that I need you. The kids 
they loved it. Lies spent six weeks as the number one song on the brand new Melon streaming service. And a few months later, Big Bang topped their own record with another Gion written electropop song called Last Farewell. This one spent a record eight weeks as the number one song on Melon. Big Bang was doing well in Korea. But the workload was way too much. The group ran themselves into the ground that first year, trying to do it all, sleeping only a few hours a night, working constantly on both group and solo work. No human could stand that sort of pressure for long, and the group went on a month-long hiatus at the end of 2007 for their own health. And then in 2008, Big Bang made their first tentative steps into the Japanese market. They scored their biggest hit yet in Korea with the moody Jiang penned electropop song called Haru Haru and utterly dominated the end of the year award shows. Haru Haru also marks a crossroads in Big Bang sound from vocals driven R&B that featured Taeyang to electropop that highlighted the rapping of G-Dragon and the equally talented T.O.P. Things seem to be looking up for the guys from the island of misfit toys as we ride into 2009. But I need to pause here first. Big Sung Hyun, T.O.P., was briefly hospitalized in November of 2008 for what YG called exhaustion and overwork, but what the gossip press and rumor mill speculated was a suicide attempt. And here's the point I want to make. Basing a not insignificant chunk of your economy on singing and dancing teenagers may drive exports of consumer goods, but it also places a heavy burden on the slender shoulders of kids who may not have the mental tools to deal with having the financial fortunes of very important people, as well as the pride of their entire nation, riding on whether or not they can memorize a piece of choreography correctly. From what I could find, T.O.P. himself has confirmed the YG story of overwork and exhaustion. But the media was utterly shameless in fanning speculation about suicide because gossip about idols drives eyeballs and advertising dollars. Idols are big business, and the collateral damage to the person underneath the makeup is not always taken into consideration. And on that note, let's bring one more group into this messy saga. That's right, it's time for an SM group called... Super Junior, who debuted in 2005, but who I haven't mentioned yet because their story is, like, super complicated. Strap in, folks, because things are about to get wild. So, for those completely new to the idol group realm, and there may be some of you listening, I don't know, Super Junior are definitely overwhelming at first glance. Unlike the compact five and six member groups we've discussed so far, at their high watermark, Super Junior had like 13 members and four separate subunits. Remember that number, 13. Super Junior fans have created complex charts to track subunit activity, who's on hiatus due to military service, on hiatus as punishment, and who is in a contract dispute with SM at any given time. Super Junior fandom is a wild ride, and one that I'm not going to get too in-depth with in this first series because of all the moving pieces. But it could not close out the 2000s without mentioning them because, well, you'll see. As I said, Super Junior was formed in late 2005, and just as DBSK was formed with an eye at the export market, 
Super Junior also had export baked into their DNA, with SM even adding a member from China, Han Geng. DBSK was focused on cracking Japan. Super Junior was the weapon SM was going to use to conquer China. Instead of a self-contained performance unit in the model of the Japanese Johnnies and Associates groups like DBSK was, Super Junior was yet another attempt at the old Menudo model of group, where the teens get graduated when they get too old. The original plan seems to have been to form a 12-member group that would have six members graduate every year with six new members cycling in to replace them. Repeat ad infinitum. The appeal for this kind of group to a production company is immediately obvious to those of us who are cynically minded. Churning through an endless number of talented teens means that the group members will never have time to figure out what's happening to them, and by the time they've developed enough confidence to demand autonomy, the company can toss them out and get some new, still eager to please ones to replace them. A group like this would not only be totally under the control of the producers, but as an added bonus, you wouldn't have to pay them very much either. Well, it didn't work with HOT. But the idea of the Menudo-style group is so juicy that SM could not resist trying again. But here is what SM clearly hadn't learned the first time. While there are a certain number of fangirls who really only enjoy the competition and naivete of the young trainees, as we learned in the last episode, those fans are a small minority. In general, fans of male idol groups want a deeper connection to the idol. We want to look up to them, admire them, and we're loyal. The relationships of fandom are deep enough to even withstand the long wait of mandatory military service. And you can't look up to and admire and feel a deep connection to a cycle of endless 16-year-old punks. So once again in 2006, SM announces that actually, whoops, they're not doing the whole swapping out thing. And after adding one more member, that's going to be it. For realsies. And fans are like, yeah, okay, cool. And then in October of 2007, SM announced the formation of a super junior subunit specifically aimed at the Chinese market that would include three members of super junior, along with two new Chinese guys who are currently SM trainees. And this subgroup would be totally under the umbrella of the Korean Cultural Technology Association and their shiny new localization strategy. Songs would be in Mandarin and everything tailored precisely to the Chinese audience's tastes. Well, Super Junior fans flipped the fuck out. They'd been promised no new members. Hundreds of fans protested in front of SM headquarters demanding that Super Junior remain only 13. Now, this seems like crazy fan behavior, but here is what you have to understand about the Only 13 movement. In August of 2006, Super Junior member Heechul got into a car accident and severely injured his leg, as well as literally biting almost completely through his tongue because of the pain. Nobody was sure if he would ever be able to sing or dance again. And then a few months later, in April of 2007, six other members of Super Junior were in another car accident. They were coming back from some work when the van, driven by an overtired and overworked road manager, spun out of control on the highway and flipped over. A few of the members were injured to varying degrees, but 18-year-old Kyuhyun suffered the most, requiring major surgery for punctured lungs, among other things, and it was doubtful that he'd be able to continue. Super Junior had just started to gain a little popularity, but now would be forced into a semi-hiatus as the injured members worked on recovering. This is the background you need to have to understand Only 13. 
when the Super Junior M subunit focused on China was announced. From SM's point of view, I'm sure they were trying to squeeze more content out of an idol group that was sitting on the shelf. But for the Super Junior fanbase, who had suffered so dreadfully the previous year along with their group, and looked like SM was trying to sneakily go back on the plan of adding new members and replacing old members possibly even replacing the beloved members the fans had cried over and kept vigil for, waiting to hear if they were live or die. So SM backtracked again, throwing the two new members of the Super Junior M subunit under the bus in the process. They would not be members of Super Junior, not officially, just of Super Junior M, but it was both too late and not enough. Unsurprisingly, Super Junior fans did not trust SM to do the right thing by their idols. I wonder why not. And in early 2008, they launched the One Fan One Stock project to purchase a stake in the company, the equivalent of a group of soccer fans banding together to try and buy a stake of their club so that they had a voice in management. Well, One Fan One Stock eventually managed to buy a 0.3% stake in the company, which is pretty incredible organizing for a group of, you know, mostly teen girls. Still, despite the protests, the plan went ahead, and Super Junior M went to China. And then, March 12, 2009, Super Junior finally, finally had a massive mainstream hit with the album Sorry Sorry. The title track is a catchy dance pop number anchored by a relentless two-bar synthesizer loop that runs for the entire song. It's hypnotic. It is so, so good. The video, released by SM on a brand new streaming video platform called YouTube, was simple keeping the focus entirely on the members as they danced in black and white on one of SM's seemingly endless supply of empty warehouse sets. The choreography is as catchy as the song, featuring this amazing combo of steps where like everybody lifts their hands up and then brings the right hand down at the same time as they lift their left knee, twisting the foot up at last moment to connect the hand with the ankle. And then they do it again on the other side. Once you've seen it, it's impossible to not try and do it along with the song every time you hear it. The lyrics are a bunch of nonsense, and they go like this. Sorry, 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 nika, 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 manjo, nigi, 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 pajo, 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 body, baby. Sorry, 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 sorry. I, I, I first. For you, for you, for you, I fell, 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 fallen. Baby.
First and foremost, they were talented performers, and it worked. Sorry Sorry wasn't just an album, it wasn't just a song, it was a statement of intent, packed full of great jams, with not a single filler track. Sorry Sorry was the best-selling Korean album of 2009, and it still holds up as an album today. I listened to it relentlessly while writing this. It is good. But even finally getting a taste of success in Korea wasn't enough for Super Junior M leader Hang Gang. By December of 2009, he'd had, 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 had enough, and Hang Gang sued SM to get out of his contract. Hang Gang was unhappy and wanted more control over his career and his life. His lawsuit against the company cited, among other things, extremely unfair financial compensation, health problems caused by two years of unending promotions, and refusal of time off to return home for a break. I am also guessing that it could not have been easy to be the only Chinese member of Super Junior, nor to see the vitriol thrown by the fans at the two other Chinese members who had been added to Super Junior M, working side by side, day after day, part of a team, only to get on stage and have the Korean fans boo them. In Hang Gang wasn't the only one unhappy with SM Entertainment. Let's check back in with our friends in DBSK. When we left them entering 2007 at the end of the last episode, their third album, Oh, had sold well, thanks in part to SM doubling down on that new sales strategy of issuing a million versions that would ensure idol group record sales remain strong even as CD sales overall continue to decline. And oh yeah, you know was still recovering from being uh, poisoned by an anti-fan. So while Korea had slowly been turning into Big Bang Country in 2007 and 2008, DBSK had been shipped overseas on a two-year-long foreign promotional tour. In 2007 alone, they released a new Japanese studio album, an incredible seven singles in Japanese each one doing just a little bit better than the last. And then on January 15th, 2008, they finally made the breakthrough they'd been working for all those long years. Their single, Purple Line, made it to number one on Japan's Oricon chart. is yet another entry in the jumbled musical discography of DBSK. 
dance club hip-hop right in the pocket of what other artists on their Japanese record company AVAX tracks were releasing at the time. Artists like the massively popular diva Kolda Kumi, with whom they collaborated with towards the end of 2007 with a song called Last Angel. The lyrics were also in step with the Japanese public's love of songs about Gambari Mashoin. Purple Line Let Me Set Up My World, Dare Mo Aruita Koto Nai This Way. It was a song perfectly poised for the time and place, and it worked. The music video was pure mid 2000s Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift with the members dancing on a deserted nighttime street in front of what appears to be a Gucci storefront, intercut with scenes of them zooming around town in luxury cars. The message was clear, if perhaps a little premature. We've made it to the top, now we're looking down at all the haters. DBSK continued on their insane release schedule through 2008, releasing an additional nine singles in Japan as well as a Japanese studio album, overloading Japanese fans with content. But to be honest, the only release that mattered was on September 26, 2008, when DBSK finally returned home to Korea with an album called Merotic. The title track, Merotic is a slinky seduction song, the members crooning in our ears as the bass drum pulses steady as a heartbeat. One, two, three, four. A hypnotic synthesizer loop luring us further and further under their spell. The video intercuts scenes of the group dancing shirtless and full of confident sex appeal with scenes of the individual members under the spell of a red-clad female siren. Were we under their skin or were they under ours? You want me, you've fallen for me, you're crazy over me, you can't escape. I've got you under my skin.
best part of all is that DBSK themselves were actually really excited about it. They had pushed for a more grown-up, less asexual image, and they got it. As tired and worn down as DBSK were, the members seem genuinely thrilled to be showing off their sexier sides in the making of video. This wasn't your standard SM production song. This was DBSK. Merotic was their reintroduction to the Korean public, and the Korean public liked what they saw. The album was a blockbuster hit and the best-selling Korean album of 2008. DBSK were on top at home, and their relentless promotions in Japan had also paid off. They were the first Korean artists to perform on the prestigious Kohaku Utsugasen New Year's Eve music show on December 31st, 2008. 2009 seemed set to continue on the same furious pace, with the group having already released four Japanese singles and a brand new Japanese studio album when on July 31st, 2009, just a few months before Han Gang would file his own suit, DBSK members Jaejung, Yu Chun, and Junsu submitted an application to the Seoul Central District Court to look into the validity of their contract with SM Entertainment. And here's where things get murky. Remember the media frenzy of T.O.P.'s alleged suicide attempt at the end of 2008? Well, tragically, a young actress named Jung Jae-yeon actually did take her own life in March of 2009, and her death tore a giant hole in the glossy, rose-colored surface of the entertainment industry. In details that were leaked to the press, a horrified public learned that Jung Jae-yeon had been forced to sexually service powerful industrymen, trapped in what was referred to as a slave contract, her only escape had been death. And it's important to understand that it's against this backdrop of public disgust with the entertainment industry that the words slave contract were so quickly linked to the dispute between SM Entertainment and the three unhappy members of DBSK. The rhetoric flying around quickly grew out of control with everybody on all sides slinging all the mud they could. I won't go into detail with the lawsuit, although if there is interest, I could be tempted to really research and dig in and dedicate a future episode to understanding the specifics, but here's the short version, as well as I understand it. Jaejung, Yuchun, and Junsu felt that they were being overworked, that they had no say in what was happening to them, no artistic control, and that they weren't being compensated fairly. Basically, that the 13-year contracts they'd signed as 17-year-olds were unfair and should be renegotiated. SM Entertainment said no. Yuno know and Chungmin sided with SM. Yuno know and Chungmin continued on as a two-member DBSK. The other three began activities as JYJ. 120,000 Cassiopeia DBSK fans filed a petition with the court in support of JYJ. The conflict dragged on for years, with SM Entertainment even allegedly trying to blacklist JYJ, but it was too late. Everybody's names were dirtied but SM eventually lost the dispute, and JYJ were able to continue in the entertainment business in the way that they wanted. So here's what we have to keep in mind. The word slave contract got thrown around a lot, but unless we're missing some crucial details, the situation of the male SM idols was very different to that of poor Jung Jae-yoon, who seems to have been coerced into prostitution. Jung Jae-yoon did not have the support of 120,000 fans willing to file a brief with the court on her behalf. She suffered alone. But just because DBSK weren't being forced into prostitution that we know of, doesn't mean that they were in a good situation. Had SM treated DBSK unfairly? The court thought so, and having watched interviews with the members from those years, I'm inclined to agree. 
Much like Hong Gang of Super Junior, SM Entertainment had treated DBSK like dancing cash machines instead of human beings. They didn't bother to manage the interpersonal relationships in the group or even attempt to control their fans' outrageous behavior. And eventually, the members were just too worn down and the bonds within the group too frayed for them to continue on. Watching old videos, it's clear that there were cracks in the five-member DBSK long before the group ultimately split. This three versus two dynamic had been present for a while before ultimately surfacing publicly in the 2009 court filing. DBSK was not a united front, renegotiating with SM like Xinhua had. All five members had been under an incredible amount of pressure, constantly on the road, no stability, no control, no support for mental health, living on top of each other. It's no wonder things went sour. And while DBSK, Super Junior, all of their fans, and SM, were distracted battling it out in the public sphere back home, Big Bang quietly waltzed right over to Japan and released an album and three singles in 2009, appeared on the end of the year spectacular Music Station Super Live, and won the Best New Artist Award at the 51st Annual Japan Record Awards on December 30th, 2009. Unlike the more quote-unquote authentic vibe that Big Bang had been peddling in Korea, in Japan, Big Bang took their image directly to full-on Technicolor pop art, Gotta Gotta Go, their breakthrough song in Japan, hits the bloodstream like a shot of pure sugar. The song is addicting, the rhythmic hook sticking toffee sweet in the ear long after the song is over. And the music video is also a far cry from the bloody, drama-filled Haru Haru in Lies. The members start off dressed in all black, accessorized with glittering silver, dancing on a garish neon-lit set. And leading the spectacle, looking for all the world like a little toy soldier in his tall hat, is G-Dragon. Halfway through the song, members flip to costumes of bright greens, reds, pinks, and invite on a bunch of female dancers to shake their booties at the camera. The lyrics say absolutely nothing. The song is glorious. Say B I G to the bang. Kodakata mata mata just bang. Gotta 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 go. Odatachi to say. Na 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 na. Say B I G to the bang. Let's keep on going, going on. Just bang. Gotta 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 go. Sing it with us. Na 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 na.
kick it, kick it, jump in, see her get low and fuck for show. She gon' make it go pop, pop, pop. So let's go, yo. We gon' let it all out tonight, girl. See the name to the up and nice girl. Everybody knows we update down. So let me see you shake, shake that around. Song, feel the beat pump to the speakers. Man, the met the hop of the picture. GD is me in the flesh. Top to bottom, so freshly dressed. I'm here to get down. Lose control, take hold of the sound. Bring it up, pop, pop, pop the ground. It's so on the nose as a dumb, catchy, over-the-top pop song that I can't help but read it as meta, especially knowing the direction their music goes in the future. They'd played around with a lighter, more poppy image in 2006 Dirty Cash, a song warning teens about the dangers of focusing only on money, which, I mean, come on, not really a great fit for Big Bang. Dirty Cash had a goofy music video where the members play acted as if they were in a band on an over-the-top 1960s group sounds showcase. But Gotta 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 Go was different. It was smarter for one thing. A pop song in quotes while also being a good pop song. And it won't be the last one like this that Big Bang releases. So we'll leave Big Bang here, ready to take on the world for just a moment. But it's worth noting that while Big Bang was conquering Japan in 2009, back home in Korea, Jiang released his first solo album, Heartbreaker, released August 18th, 2009. And it was packed full of more of the same type of electropop gems he was writing for Big Bang, but with even more over-the-top pop art visuals. It was a smash, making sure we all knew the name G-Dragon and securing his position as a talent to be taken seriously. Big Bang, while they are technically an idol group, really operate more like a collection of individual talents than like a group. When Heartbreaker came out in 2009, Young Bay had already put out a solo album, and all the members had done solo songs as part of Big Bang. The group performs together, yes, in our fun-to-watch bantering and behind-the-scenes videos. But Big Bang is strictly a professional means to an end for these guys. As Big Bang, their number one goal is to make money while making good music and seeing just how far they can push their technicolor pop art fantasy world. The bond that we see in other groups is far down the list of their concerns. And there's both good and bad sides to that as we'll see moving forward. In the next episode, I'll cover what was happening in Japan during these three intense years of 2007 to 2009. But for now, I'll close out with a song from Xinhua's 2008 album, Volume 9, called Destiny of Love. As all the shenanigans with SM were happening, Xinhua were putting out good music and celebrating their 10th anniversary, and I'm sure watching with great interest. That could have been them. Talk to you next time, folks. Check it out. Get your